All right, if you have your Bibles with you, why don't you open up to Romans chapter 16 once again. Only going to be looking at two verses this morning. And one of those warm, feel-good verses in the Bible, it is not. But it's good, a lot of truth in here. We're going to look at Romans 16, 17, and 18. So let's all stand together and see what the Lord has to say to us today. Paul says, Now I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you learned, and turn away from them. For such men are slaves, not of our Lord Christ, but of their own appetites. And by their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. Let's pray. God, I pray that you would send your Holy Spirit and guide us in all truth in these two verses here, Lord. Show us the things that that we need to see for our own lives. And, uh, God, that we may live lives that more accurately glorify and honor you. So, Lord, we ask for you to have your way. In Jesus' name, amen. In any given church body, there are really two kinds of people. There are those who tend to put more of an emphasis on biblical doctrine and those who tend to put more of an emphasis on relationships. And I guess you can say there's actually a third group too, and that would be those that don't give a rip about either one. But for those that are serious about following Christ and are engaged in the life of the church, they will fall into one of those two categories. When we train small group leaders, this is one of the things that we talk about because small groups will have a tendency to want to lean one way or the other. Some will want to spend the majority of their time focusing on getting into God's Word and Bible study, and others will want to spend the majority of their time developing relationships. And so we we talk to the small group leaders about the importance of making sure that there is a healthy balance of both. But generally speaking, those who put a, a lot of weight on the meaning of Scripture and love getting into it and even teaching it at times and make it a a priority to ensure the faithfulness of those doctrines, they don't tend to be very relational people. And their dogmatic stance that they tend to take on some of those doctrinal issues can rub people the wrong way, which then kind of pushes them away from relationships. And then on the other hand, those who are very relational and love the community aspect of church and and doing life together and building relationships tend to really not be all that concerned very much about doctrine. They generally have the attitude that who cares about all that? Let's just love each other. In fact, you could categorize whole denominations and institutions and even periods of time in church history Along those lines, there are those who emphasize doctrinal purity and those who emphasize relational unity. Some of you may be thinking, well, well, can it be both? Why does it have to be one way or the other? Can't you love biblical truth and also love community? And the answer is yes, it should be that way. But the reality is that our different personalities generally cause us to lean one way over another. The period of time that we live in today is not an easy time 
to be on the side of being a lover of truth. The most common criticism is that if you stand for an important truth and believe others should believe that same way, then you are arrogant, closed-minded, and intolerant. That kind of stance undermines relationship. And so many people today, even some within the church, believe that the best way to maintain peace and harmony and good relationships is to not take a hard stand on truth and just allow dissent from, from wherever. They kind of have the mindset of let's not get into all that's right and wrong. Let's just all get along and accept one another as we are. Now, on the surface, that seems to make some sense. I mean, if no one claims that what he or she believes deserves dissent from from anyone else, then we would all be able to get along and live together in peace and unity, right? But the reality is that it just doesn't work like that. When there is no truth that deserves disagreement and we have the attitude that it doesn't really matter what you believe as long as we're all getting along, then the ultimate decider of truth becomes the one who has the most power. If there is no standard, no basis for truth, then the ultimate decider of what is right and wrong is the one who bears the sword. Might makes right. And the one who tends to hold the most power is the government. And when might makes right... And the government begins deciding what is right and wrong because the people refuse to acknowledge any standard of truth at all. Then people start paying with their lives. When the claim of truth disappears for the sake of relational unity, what you get is not loving relationships. What you get is concentration camps and gulags. The Bible teaches that in order to maintain real solid relationships with one another, that those relationships have to be grounded on a foundation of biblical truth. And I want you to see how out of step these two verses are that we're looking at today, how out of step they are with our Western culture that we live in. It gives us a way of thinking and living that most of our fellow Americans would consider offensive and intolerant and unloving. It is a text on the importance of doctrinal purity, but at the same time, it is a text on the importance of relational unity. My hope in preaching from these two verses is that you will be freed from any blindness or bondage to this truth-diminishing period of time that we are living in today. Let's look at verse 17 again. He says, Now I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you learned, and turn away from them. Paul gives two commands in this verse that seem pretty contradictory to one another. First, he says to watch out for people who do two things. They cause dissensions or division, and they cause hindrances to sound doctrine. So with this command, Paul is expressing that the unity of the body is extremely important. In fact, he has pretty much spent the last four and a half chapters 
um, highlighting that importance. He spent the first 11 chapters laying solid doctrinal truth, like things about the condition of man apart from Christ and the consequences of sin, the only remedy for that sin being in Jesus, and then what it means to be in him and truths about the sovereignty of God. But then in the rest of the letter, he's telling us how to apply all that doctrine, and he tells us to apply it in the context of community. Now, which of those two groups do you think Paul fell in? Well, from reading the first 11 chapters, you would think that he was more of a doctrine guy than a relationship guy. But then reading everything from 12 on, you'd think, no, he is definitely a relational guy. But I don't believe Paul was really one way or another. He understood the importance of both. Now, apart from Christ, I can tell you that he was straight up nothing but a doctrinal guy. And he even said that he was zealous for God's law, and he was a strict enforcer of that law. And so his natural bent would be to be more about doctrine. But Jesus saved him and filled him with the Holy Spirit and opened his eyes to the necessity of relationship and community. So Paul spends the last part of his letter on relationships and the importance of them. He wants us to come together and love one another and do life together. He spent chapter 14 telling us not to let our our disagreements about different things and our petty issues to cause us to be divided. And then here in verse 17 of chapter 16, he's telling us that this unity, this, this relationship and coming together is so important that we've got to be intentional about protecting it. Look out for those who threaten to destroy it. But then he gives another command that, like I said, seems to be absolutely contradictory to what he just said. He says to turn away from them, to avoid them. So first he says to watch out for those who cause division, and then he tells us to cause division. By turning away from them, separating from them, dividing from them. And so what this tells us is that true biblical unity does not have the attitude of it doesn't matter what you believe as long as we all get along together. It does not mean everyone coming together, holding hands and singing Kumbaya. It means here that there are some that you don't hold hands with. There are some that you don't try to get along with. There are some that you need to separate yourself from. The division that Paul is calling for is a division for the sake of real unity. And when I say real unity, what I mean by that is that we can have the appearance of being unified, but without without experiencing real Christ-centered, Christ-exalting, biblical unity. False unity is what you hear being called for in the world today. It's the it doesn't matter what you believe as long as we all get along kind of unity. It's the let's be tolerant of one another no matter what we believe, no matter what lifestyle we choose to live. Let's be accepting of all religions because ultimately we are all one humanity. But this is not real Christ-centered biblical unity. This is something that is very dangerous. And I'm sure you've probably already noticed that it's let's be tolerant of all religions as long as it's not Christianity. 
And it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you don't believe the Bible. So the tolerance of the world only goes so far. It's a false unity. True unity can only be the kind that is found in Jesus and rooted in solid biblical doctrine. And if you want to experience it, you have to be diligent and intentional about protecting it. And in order to protect it, you have to look out for those who can hurt it. And when you find them, you must separate from them. Let's talk about them. What kind of people should we look out for? Well, there are two kinds here, or really two ways that people can try to destroy unity. First, he says to watch out for those who cause dissension or cause division. Last week, I talked about three fears that many people struggle with that can be very detrimental to a church body. They were the fear of not being significant, the fear of rejection, and the fear of being known. And we looked at how those fears will tend to cause us to, to, to try to make others look bad so that we can look better. And we'll be very quick to point out the flaws in others so that the attention will be off of the flaws in us. And when you get a lot of people together in one place, these things are going to happen. I mean, the more flawed people there are, the more flaws there are going to be for people to point out. But if we are serious about protecting this fragile unity of the body, then we should be nipping that in the bud as soon as we hear it. Because we are all a work in progress, we are going to, at times, experience and run into people who are going to hurt us, who are going to disappoint us, who are going to offend you in some way. It's just a given. It's going to happen. And just because they go to church doesn't mean you shouldn't run into that. In fact, you may actually encounter it more at church than you will anywhere else because Satan is going to work double time to try to distort and diminish the name of Jesus. Jesus knew that this would happen with his people. He knew that until he came back again, his people were going to criticize one another. They were going to talk bad of each other and point out one another's flaws. And so he gave very specific instructions on how to handle it when something like that comes up. Those instructions were in Matthew chapter 18, and there are three steps that he says to take. The first step, if someone does something that um, is in some way against you, offends you, hurts you in any way, or does something that, that you know is wrong, that you have a problem is, the first step is to tell as many people as you can about it and build a group around you that will sympathize with you and take up an offense for you against that other person. Seeing who's listening out there. (laughs) Apparently not very many. (laughs) That is not the first step. But if you were to observe most church people, you would think that that was the first step. Because that's generally our initial reaction to when somebody does something wrong to us or to somebody else. We're immediately going to tell other people about it. But the first step, Jesus says, is to go to that person. 
before you go to anybody else, you go to that person. And then the reason is, if you go to someone else, before you go to that person, you immediately sow a seed of division that can grow very quickly. And you have just damaged the whole body for your own selfish gain. Please do not do that. The only time you are to bring someone else into the situation is after you have completed the first step and the person that you have gone to refuses to make things right. Only then can you get two or three people and sit around and talk about how sorry that person is for not making it right. More of you listening now. (laughs) That's not the second step. The second step is to get two or three people with you and again go to that person. And then if they still refuse to make it right, the third step is to go to the church leadership and turn it over to them and let them handle it. But listen, once you do that, you are done. The issue is out of your hands now. In fact, by taking it all the way to the third step, you've just signified to God that, God, I'm turning it over into your hands now. It is not mine to deal with anymore. I'm trusting you with it. And if you have done that, then there is absolutely no need for you to pick it back up again by going and telling everybody else about the horrible things that just happened. Going through all those three steps does not mean you are then now free to go tell everybody about it. It means that you are done with it. You are no longer involved with it as far as you are concerned, that it is in God's hands now, and you are trusting him. And so when Paul says to watch out for those who cause division, part of that means those who refuse to take that first step. If someone comes to you talking about what oh so-and-so did before they go any further, if you have any care for the body, the unity of the body at all, you need to stop them and ask, wait a minute, have you gone to that person yet? And if they haven't, then you need to let them know very clearly, but in love, that you are not going to participate in their disobedience. You need to encourage them to take those biblical steps. And if they refuse to do that, well, then you do what Paul says here and avoid them. Separate yourself from them. And let me just say this. I am as flawed as the next person. And I'm going to do things that people don't agree with I'm going to unknowingly hurt people at times, especially with my personality. I tend to do that, get so tunnel visioned on one thing, I may step on people along the way and not even realize it. I'm going to do things that some think a pastor shouldn't do, and I'm going to not do things that they think a pastor should do. It's going to happen. And if I do, and it affects you in any way, or you ever have a problem with something that I do or don't do, I'm asking you, please, Come to me. Please talk to me about it. And slipping an anonymous note in the offering plate does not count. (laughs) Jesus didn't say slip them a note without your name on it. He said go to them. 
I'll tell you right now, my door is open every day of the week in my office, except on Thursdays. That is the day where I shut the door and buckle down on, on getting the message done. But I tell you, if there is a relationship that is damaged, that I've damaged in some way, I will put the sermon off to deal with that. I will open my door on Thursday if you've got something that you need to come to me with. So please do that before you go to anyone else. You know, one of the reasons I believe that Jesus said take that first step and go to the person one-on-one is because if you think about it, I mean 90% of uh, relational conflict is usually because of nothing more than a miscommunication or a misunderstanding. It's the wrong or or bad information. And just going to that person, you could easily find out the right information and get the right communication, and it's fixed. And you avoid all the drama and hurt and pain of going and telling everybody else about it when it's still the wrong information. So going to that person easily and quickly and painlessly often solves it right then. And so if someone comes to you claiming about something that I've done or didn't do, again, ask them if they've come and talked to me. And if they didn't, encourage them to do so. But do not participate in dividing the body that Jesus bled and died to unite. Just don't do it. So that's one way that people can destroy the unity of the body. The other way is someone who Paul says causes hindrances contrary to the teaching which you learned. Now keep in mind, this is not the same thing that he was talking about in chapter 14 when he was talked about different beliefs and he said each one must be fully convinced in his own mind. In chapter 14, there was no talk of avoiding people. It was quite the opposite. It was about coming together and loving one another and respecting one another in spite of our different beliefs and opinions on on certain things. But those were petty issues that he was talking about there. Here in chapter 16, the approach is very different. Why? Because Paul isn't talking about petty differences. Here he is talking about foundational doctrines, indisputable truth. These are the essentials of the gospel. Now, Paul could have said, you know what? Nobody has all the truth, and one person's truth is no more important than the next person's, and so uh, you all just come together and, and get along. That's what the world says, but it's not what Paul says. It's not what God's Word says. He's talking about some fundamental truths that are non-negotiable like the sinful condition of man and how salvation is through Christ alone. Jesus is the only way, the deity of Christ. The fact that salvation is by God's grace alone and not by some works-based effort or achievement. Those are the teachings of Jesus and the apostles that are non-negotiable, non-negotiable. It's one thing to believe that you can wear a hat in the church building, chapter 14, but it's a whole other ball game to believe that love is going to win out in the end and everyone is going to go to heaven no matter what. It's one thing to believe that it's okay to have a glass of wine every now and then, chapter 14, but it's a whole other issue to believe that all roads eventually lead to God. And so when someone departs from these fundamental truths, Paul sees that as a greater threat to unity than the disunity of separating yourself 
from someone who's trying to bring that false teaching into the body. How can that be? How can dividing from a false teacher actually promote more unity in the church? The answer to that is that the only unity that counts as true unity is one that is rooted in common biblical teaching. Now, I wish that I didn't have to say this next part, but I do. And that is that it is very possible to go completely overboard in this. And the reason why I have to say it is because there are churches and there are people who do go overboard with this. And what I mean by that is that they become so obsessed with spotting doctrinal error that they lose their ability to rejoice in doctrinal truth. Some people seem to believe that it is their duty to sniff out and expose any, the slightest bit of doctrinal error wherever they find it. And so that's just about all that they focus on. They're like a dog trained to sniff out drugs on people at the airport. And then when they're off duty, they greet everyone the same way. You come up to a dog like that just hanging out at somebody's house and he's been trained to sniff out drugs... And he comes up and he's sniffing all over you and you know he's trying to look for drugs on you. It makes you a little bit uneasy. It's not very welcoming. In the same way, people who go overboard on pointing out doctrinal error can be just as uncomfortable to be around. They don't create a very welcoming environment. I had somebody come to me one time and just, I had to see this video that they had about this guy. Say, oh, you've got to see this guy. He is so good. And I watched it. And the whole thing was this man sitting there and playing video clip after video clip of of all these different preachers and him sitting there and pointed out all the different ways that they were wrong in what they were preaching. And granted, a lot of it was wrong. It was pretty out of whack. But the whole time I'm watching that, I just got this uneasy feeling. I felt kind of dirty sitting there and watching all that. There just wasn't a good spirit behind it. I mean, it's one thing to point out doctrinal error. But if you're not pointing to Jesus, then what's the point? And he wasn't doing any of that. The book of Romans doesn't make that mistake. Periodically, Paul points out doctrinal error, but most of Romans is the glorious display of Christ for us and in us. i tell you, the best way to recognize doctrinal error is to come as knowledgeable as you can of doctrinal truth. The more you focus on what's true, the easier it is going to be able to spot what is not. Vigilance for error is necessary, but joy in truth should be our main focus. And then lastly, verse 18 is going to tell us why it is important to be vigilant vigilant about these people and why it can be hard to actually separate from them. Verse 18 again, he says, For such men are slaves, not of our Lord Christ, but of their own appetites, and by their smooth and flattering speech they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. The reason we must be so vigilant and looking out for those who cause division and depart from doctrinal truth is because they are usually able to take many other people with them because of their flattering speech. 
false teachers don't get a following by being harsh and rude. They get a following by being funny and nice. Those who talk bad about others all the time and refuse to take the steps that Jesus listed out in Matthew 18, sometimes they can be hard to, uh, to confront and to separate yourself from because they're, they're just so likable. They could be one of those people that, you know, not only are they hiding their flaws by pointing out everyone else's, but they're also hiding behind their humor. They're hiding behind it, but boy, everybody sure does love it. And they love being around them. And this verse also means that if you do confront someone like that and you separate them, you may run the risk of not being very popular with other people in the church. Because there are going to be many who have already been seduced by their flattering speech, and they're going to take up a defense of that person. They'll be like, oh, come on. I mean, he's a good old boy. He's harmless. And he's just so friendly and nice. Come on, it's not a big deal. That's how Paul says that they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. They don't get people just to agree with them. They get their hearts, too which means they cause people to just fall in love with them. And that's precisely why Paul says, keep an eye out for them. Watch out for those people. You know, Jesus paid a high price for the kind of unity that God created us for, the kind of unity that he wants to experience, the same unity that he enjoys in himself, in the Trinity. And when we are unified in him, I'm telling you what, awesome things happen. We are starting to experience that more and more in this church body, and I, I absolutely love it. I love seeing what's going on. But we've got to be aware that the more unified we become, the stronger the attack against that unity is going to be. And it usually won't be very obvious at all. It's going to be subtle and usually disguised as something good, as something harmless. But it's up to all of us, not just the church leadership, to be on the lookout and then to confront it whenever we see it. But in order to preserve that unity, it may require us to separate from some. And that is not a pleasant thing. But what it leads to is so worth whatever discomfort that may come at the moment. And then finally... When it comes to which category you fit in, whether it's the fact that you lean more to biblical doctrine or you lead more to relational unity, I hope you now realize that it's not either or, it's both and. It's both and. You can't have one without the other. In order to be unified in biblical Christ-centered relationships, those relationships must be grounded in solid biblical doctrine. And if you're going to be about solid doctrine, you cannot ignore the call to unity. I mean, what's the point of all that doctrine if you're not going to apply it? In Jesus, we find both. We find both of them when we're in him. The more we know him, the more we love him. So let's all pursue both of them as we pursue knowing him more. Let's pray.
Lord, I thank you for truth that you have laid out before us this morning. God, I pray that we would be so in love with you and so in love with the unity that we can find in you, the kind of unity that you will not find out there in the world. God, that we would be, because of that love, just diligent to protect it. God, we would be quick and careful to not participate in the destruction of that unity by handling conflict in an unbiblical way. But Lord, I know that what we need is to build those kind of relationships to when we do have to confront someone that they know that they can trust us. They're better better able to receive whatever it is we're coming to them with. So Lord, as we continue to be filled with doctrinal purity I pray that the result of that will become more and more relational unity and so Father I pray that you make us into the church body that you have called us to be that you have saved us to be that you have by your hand put each individual in this place together to be so Lord help us to do what's right so that your name can be exalted. So that again, people won't be saying what a great church E.T. is, but what a great God Jesus is. They'd only be able to see you in us. So Father, I pray that you have your way among us this morning. Lord, if there are those who you are making aware of, maybe they've been participating in some of that, God, that they would come to repentance this morning and just lay that before you. So God, I just ask you to have your way, whatever you want to do with us in the rest of this time together. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.